Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My aim when I started was to make migration as a normal policy area, <laughs> less toxic, you know. And, and I think we are there now, at least quite close. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Suzanne Lynch, co-author of Political's Brussels Playbook, and I'll be your host for this week's episode. At the top of the podcast, you heard Ilva Johansson, European Commissioner in Charge of Home Affairs. I sat down with her earlier on Thursday to talk about the EU's migration policies and what progress, if any, has been made since the Migration Pact was announced back in September 2020. You'll hear more of that later in the podcast. Also in this episode, we'll dive into the EU's relationship with Australia and discuss if a free trade agreement between the two is finally on the cards. Also, we'll hear how Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine has brought these two geographically distant blocks even closer together. So be sure to stick around for that. Well, lots of the action may have been across the channel in London this week, with the news that Boris Johnson is to step down as Prime Minister. As we've seen uh, at Westminster, uh, the herd instinct is powerful, and when the herd moves, it moves. But there's plenty happening here in Brussels and Strasbourg to keep things interesting. Let's start with our podcast panel, and to discuss some of the issues this week, I'm joined by Clea Colcutt, our French politics reporter based in Paris. Hello, Suzanne. And Maya Delabom, our Brussels politics reporter. Hi, Suzanne. Great to have you. Clea, we, we'll start with you. There's been a lot of talk in France about a, a new documentary on Macron, A President's Europe and War. That's the name. And it was released last week on French TV. Tell us a bit more about it. The reviews are in. What did you think? Well, it certainly is a gripping documentary, if only for the access that the documentary maker got. I mean, he's really behind the scenes. He's following advisors whom we as sort of mortal hacks only ever get very tight lip briefings with, never see them sort of let go, never see them chatting and laughing and, and always anonymous. And here they're really, you see them throughout the sort of build up to the Ukraine war and after. And for those, you know, who are passionate about diplomacy, it's not for an audience, a very informed audience, it's very much for the general public. And so and I think that's why the Elise agreed mm. to it is because it makes the whole story much more personal. I mean, that's exactly, it's, it's one of the questions. I mean, why did they agree to it? As you say there, the Elise are notoriously kind of closed and it's just fascinating that they allow these cameras in to be flies on the wall. Why do you think they did that? Well, it's true, it's still a mystery to me because of what the, traditionally we know about them. 
And I think there were two things. One is that Macron is kind of on, you know, what we would mockingly say as a kind of slightly Netflix uh, drive at the moment. He's putting out videos shot by his team about his mandate. And on this one, there's interviews from the director who said, you know, I want to make it uh, a more personal video. It was supposed to initially be about Macron and the European Union, because there was the presidency of the EU Council that was being held by France for six months. And obviously, Ukraine came along. So it became a documentary about Ukraine. And I think he managed to convince them. And obviously, in his interviews, there's very few interviews, he doesn't challenge them much. And I think that's why he gets this access. Interesting. You see, that's the kind of, you know, deal that has to be done, he felt maybe to get that access. And it, it kind of hits on those ethical issues we know as journalists all the time and you're dealing with politicians. Um, I mean, did it reveal anything new about Macron? I think it's got lots of detail that's just fascinating about his how he talks to foreign leaders, uh, the fact that he uses two, which is an informal way of speaking with Putin, uh, the fact that he sort of plays out kind of tough talking, because the key thing about this and the controversial thing about this documentary is you get snippets of conversations between Macron and the leaders, phone conversations, all those phone conversations that were flying around as uh, Russia was invading uh, Ukraine. And uh, so you get the tone, you get uh, Putin, his very flat tone, you know, there's, he's not giving away much emotion and sort of like moments where he sort of descends into a very sort of bureaucratic language and then suddenly starts talking about hockey, ice hockey. And you're like this, he, he, he sounds like he's taking the piss, basically. Mm, you know, I mean, who who has it benefited really, I suppose? I mean, Macron's reputation domestically is one thing, but internationally he's come under a lot of criticism for maybe reaching out too much to Russia. I mean, the Polish leader, for example, accused him of essentially appeasing Russia and making comparisons to Neville Chamberlain in the, in the late 1930s with Hitler. So, I mean, do you think this is going to do him any favours in terms of how his handling of the Russian war is going to go down internationally? Internationally, I don't think so. I don't think it's going to do any favours. I mean, if he comes across as somebody who's ready to uh, breach diplomatic protocol in filming himself talking to leaders, it's difficult to see how he's going to position himself later on, um, because that's what everybody's sort of wondering is all this sort of posturing on Russia and saying, you know, we don't need to, we shouldn't humiliate Russia. This is a way of sort of positioning himself so that later down the line, he will be able to negotiate something. Obviously, this is a really controversial thing. And, and the Elysee have always pushed back and said, you know, we will follow Ukraine's lead and whatever they want, we will back. So they're not pushing for negotiation, but they, they are sort of positioning themselves as a potential mediator. Great, fascinating stuff. Um, while we're focusing on, on France, maybe bring us up to date on what's happening uh, in Paris in terms of the cabinet reshuffle that was announced this week. Obviously, uh, we've had a, a string of elections in France. We saw Macron return, you know, win the election, if you like, but losing his, his absolute majority in the parliament. So um, what's been happening there? Well, yes, we had a, a cabinet reshuffle this week and uh, it was more of a readjustment than a revolution. As you were saying, Macron's party did not win an outright majority, and so they're a minority government, which puts France in a very unusual situation. They're not used to this. And so in the weeks after the parliamentary elections, the government had said that they were going to try and sort of build 
you know, coalitions or maybe an enlarged government bringing in people from the left and the right. Now, what has come through in the reshuffle is that that has failed. Uh, what we're seeing more is a kind of shoring up of the government okay. so that he's promoted and nominated people from his allied parties. And also, you know, he had to replace ministers who'd lost in elections and a very kind of almost technocratic cabinet, which shows that what he's focusing on now is trying to push through legislation one by one, maybe negotiating ad hoc deals. And and there's some new names there. I mean, for example, people, a lot of our listeners will be familiar with Clément Bonne, who was, you know, the Europe minister. We've had him on the podcast here before. Very high profile, Alain Macron. He's been moved. Um, maybe fill us in about his changes and who, who we have instead as the Europe minister. Yes, so he's been moved to transport, which is seen a little bit as a demotion for him. Um, I think he was very much seen as Macron's man on Europe. And so transport, maybe not quite so uh, high profile. And who is who's going to be in instead of Bonn in the, in the Europe portfolio? So it's Laurence Bonn. So obviously it's spelled completely different, but it's Bonn. <laughs> Uh, like Clément Bonne, she used to be the head economist for the OECD, and she also used to be an advisor to François Hollande, who was the president of France, and she's seen as being um, very knowledgeable about Europe. Uh, she worked on the Greek debt crisis, uh, so very strong on economy, very strong on Europe, very uh, strong expert profile but possibly not someone who has much of a political profile here in France. Okay, interesting times. Thanks a million for that update, Claire. Um, Maya, um, lots happening as well in the European Parliament. We're kind of gearing up for the summer here, but you had a great story during the week about interpreters walking off the job. Tell us more. Yeah, so first of all, I think we it is important to underline that without interpreters, the EU is nothing in some ways because it's all, you know, anyone who works in Brussels knows that uh, interpreters are essential to the job because every single meeting is translated into the languages, the many languages of the EU. So when an interpreter is on strike, it sort of brings the EU to be more dysfunctional. And so what happened is that they, we can't say they walked, I mean, they walked out virtually because what they don't want to uh, interpret now is the remote translation because it really changes their work. So this is the key issue. Yeah, this seems to be the key issue, the remote working. Is that it? Yes, because since COVID, this is a job that has changed a lot since we know that a lot of meetings are now on hybrid mode. So they're either in presence, people are there, or it's on, on a remote system like you know, MEPs connecting themselves on the internet and participating in meetings. And it means that interpreters have to translate directly from people who are not in the room. So they don't see them. They don't see the body language. They don't see, uh, you know, things that when you talk to interpreters are very important to them. They need to see the bodies in action. And so they also have a lot of issues with the sound, the quality of sound and the the connection problem. So, you know, when MEPs talk from their cars or from the train, it makes the work of a translator or an interpreter very difficult. So health issues, really, they're saying, is one of the main gripes that they have. Yes, because, I mean, it has a lot of effects, obviously, on the ear and they have a lot of ear problems, but also 
you know, it's other diseases, other effects that can be like real headaches and uh, vision issues and nauseas. But there, there was another interesting issue um, on that, which was that the parliament had hired kind of freelance staff, that they were bringing in other staff to fill in their, their roles. That was the case. Yeah, and that also added up to the whole, let's say, anger against the European Parliament from interpreters because what the Parliament did is when they knew that interpreters would go on strike, they just hired external uh, interpreters, which means that they very sort of rapidly hire people who are not accredited to the EU, so have not a real knowledge of EU affairs. The language, the terminology that we all know here, yeah. And Maya, what has the Parliament's response been? So the Parliament so far has, you know, tried to negotiate with the interpreters' unions, but so far the talks have failed. Let's say it's ongoing. And for now, the Parliament has admitted that they had hired these external interpreters, but they also said that they did this because in very sort of in urgent cases, they had to have interpreters because you cannot have meetings without interpretation. And so it's, as we say in French, a quatre force majeure, which means it's, you know, they have no other option than to hire these people. Absolutely. I mean, I was in Strasbourg myself this week and I mean, it was it was a very interesting week. We had a vote on the taxonomy proposal, that awful word that's entered the EU lexicon about classifying nuclear and, and gas as green. And, and that proposal really got the go ahead in the end. It was quite controversial. There was also another story that we've been covering in Politico about the appointment of the new secretary general. So it looks like the chef de cabinet of Roberta Metzola, the European Parliament president, Alessandra Chiochetti, is being lined up for that job. We'll have a link to that story in our show notes. But I mean, maybe Maya, just with your experience covering Brussels and Strasbourg, I mean, how important is the role of a secretary general? What do they do? Um, Just as way of background, Klaus Fella, the person who's been in this role, is retiring at the end of the year. So hence, they're preparing to appoint someone to replace him. Yeah, I mean, it's mainly the, the most important civil servant in the European Parliament. And I think you have secretary generals in every single parliament around the world, maybe, I don't know, but there's a secretary general always dealing with the administration. And so Klaus Wehle, who is the current secretary general, who is German, oversees thousands of people. And so basically, he, he is the one deciding on everything that happens from, uh, you know, the organization of work for MEPs. Uh, the buildings and the, yeah. Exactly, the building policy. The uh, He basically is the guy overseeing the way the parliament works and, and the well-functioning of the parliament, let's say. Yeah, fascinating. We'll watch that story. Um, Vela's not stepping down until the end of the year, so still some way to run on this story. Thank you very much, Clea and Maya, for joining us on the podcast. Great to chat to you both. Thank you. Thank you, Suzanne. Coming up after the break, EU Home Affairs Chief Ilvo Johansson talks about the progress and challenges the EU continues to face when it comes to bringing national migration policies into line with each other. And we'll hear a fascinating perspective on the EU's relationship with Australia in conversation with a high-level delegation of Aussies who recently visited our studio. Stay with us. 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Ilvo Johansson has been the European Commissioner in charge of Home Affairs since 2019. We last spoke to the Swedish politician on this podcast back in September 2020, when she revealed a new plan to tackle one of the most divisive issues facing Europe, migration. Fast forward nearly two years and we wanted to catch up with the Commissioner to see what tangible progress has been made and where things are still stuck in the EU political machine. It's a timely conversation which took place early Thursday morning at her office in the European Commission headquarters in Brussels. The Commissioner had just returned from a European Parliament session in Strasbourg, where she engaged in a debate about the status of migrants seeking protection at the EU's borders. This was following a tragic event in recent days, as she described here to the European Parliament. On Friday the 24th of June, up to 2,500 people tried to force their way into Spain. 23 migrants confirmed dead, but I am afraid there might be even more casualties. A lot more injured. Johansson says that tragedies like this show once again that Europe needs the Pact on Migration and Asylum. So I started out by asking the Commissioner how much progress has been made since we last spoke on the issue of migration. When I took office in the 1st of December in 2019, the situation was that uh, the migration policy area has been blocked for years. Everybody asked for a consensus, uh, and that, of course, extremely difficult to find in all uh, aspects in the EU and and Council, but especially on this. We had a situation with 42,000 migrants on the Greek islands living under unacceptable conditions, maybe you remember. So what has happened since then? Yes, we presented the pact, the proposal in September 2020. But what also happened is that we have managed to decongest the islands. Now there are 2,000 migrants on the Greek islands. We have managed a situation where Turkey and Erdogan said he will open the borders to, towards the EU. We have managed a situation where the Taliban took over in Afghanistan. Uh, we have managed a situation where Lukashenko tried to instrumentalize people and force them to sell tickets to the European Union. Union. We are now in the middle of the biggest refugee crisis we've seen since the Second World War. We managed to activate the Temporary Protection Directive, giving protection for 3.7 million Ukrainian refugees right now. We managed to activate this with a unanimous decision in the Council within one week. So what I'm saying is that we are managing migration 
better and better together. So, so you mentioned there about the speed at which member states agreed to allow Ukrainian refugees in. But of course, you know, there's been a lot of accusations of double standards that, yes, it's one thing with the Ukrainian refugees, but on the broader migration pact, which deals with third country nationals are coming in mainly through the Mediterranean, uh, there's been less consensus and it's been more divided. But you did mention there that there has been progress on some files. So can you just specifically say what has changed? So during the French presidency in the last few weeks, you did reach agreement on a few parts of this. What were those uh, files? Those three files, you can say, it was both Eurodac, where is where you register irregular arrivals and make sure that, for example, children don't go missing and things like that. And that's through fingerprinting. Fingerprinting right? and, yes. and other kind of re- registration. We also on a file on screening is where you make sure that uh, what what who is this person? Is this a vulnerable person? Is somebody that needs specific uh, care? Is it the unaccompanied minor? Is it a person that is probably not a refugee? This is the screening proposal, and that also includes a monitoring mechanism to make sure that we comply with fundamental rights at our borders. Then there was also, in addition to this, a solidarity declaration signed by a majority of the member states to right now start doing relocation and financial support to member states under pressure. But can I also say that I hear these voices saying that there are double standards. I do not really agree on that. Uh, the Temporary Protection Directive is a specific directive. We are using this because we don't want all the Ukrainians to be into the normal asylum system because then others will suffer that are in the normal so, asylum system. So it will system. clog up the normal asylum system. Yes. So this was a tailor-made for the so Ukrainians. So this is tailor-made for a specific temporary uh, thing uh, just due to, to the war. So otherwise they will have put out, you should say, other people from the asylum. Um, they will yes. clog up. Yes, that would be. And this temporary uh, mechanism, just to be clear, am I right in saying that before the war in Ukraine, Ukrainians had the right to be in the EU, in Schengen, for up to 90 days. And what you've done through this temporary mechanism is now that's been extended for, what, two years, a year, and it can be extended. Yes, uh, one year and it can be extended. But what is even more important, they have the right to stay, but they also have the right to work. Uh, Their children have the right to go to school. They have the right to get support for housing. They have the right to health care. They have the right to other kind of social support as well. And that means now we have a level playing field for all Ukrainian refugees. And I think this is important. Mm. But of course, a lot of people would immediately say that's fine for the Ukrainian refugees. That's good uh, for the Ukrainian refugees. But what about all the other refugees coming in uh, from third countries? So getting back to the progress you said that has been made on those two files, the third one you mentioned was relocation. So maybe just to dive into that a bit, I mean, this was the kind of most controversial part of the migration pact for years, since 2015, when we saw so many uh, migrants and refugees coming from Syria. And this is the idea that the frontline member states on the southern borders, particularly Greece, Spain, Italy, obviously get most of the refugees who arrive, and they wanted the rest of the EU to share that burden. But over the last few years, the Commission, it seems, has moved away from the idea of mandatory loca- relocation, that you'd relocate migrants throughout uh, the bloc, and instead this system is voluntary. So can you tell us specifically what was agreed with this, as you're calling it, a solidarity mechanism, but it's essentially this idea of relocation? So so what has been agreed on that? What, what is, it's agreed is a solidarity declaration. So it's been voluntary for member states to sign on this. When they sign, they have to do 
either financial support or relocation. It's important to remember that the member states most affected with asylum seekers are usually not the frontline ones. The member states with the highest number of uh, asylum applications per capita, if we do not count the Ukrainians right now, are countries like Austria, they are very high up, uh, like Netherlands, uh, Belgium. They are really having a lot of asylum applications. They are not frontline countries, but they have more asylum applications per capita than a country like Italy, for example. Because so it, that's, that means you have to see that different member states are affected in different ways. So you need different kind of support here. We're speaking at a time where there's been renewed focus on the loss of lives, uh, particularly at the moment on the Spanish-Moroccan border. How concerned? What's your response to that? Um, is there anything the Spanish authorities should have done? Uh, is there some blame that needs to be laid at the door of the EU's migration policy for this? No. Uh, but of course, at least 23 people are dead and a lot of hundreds and hundreds are injured, uh, migrants, but also from the, the police, uh, both Moroccans and Spanish. But there was a situation where... 2,500 probably uh, migrants also with weapons tried to force themselves into the European Union. And this shows, also, that's also part of my pact actually, that if we would like to avoid irregular arrivals and focus on legal pathways to the European Union, we have to work along the routes. Uh, these people were not Moroccans. They were coming probably via Libya and Algeria into Morocco, try to force themselves into the EU. They are using smugglers. They are coming along routes. And that's why it's so important that we do not only focus on our external borders, because that will lead to a fortress Europe, and I don't want to have that. We have to work with partner countries along the routes, and we have to fight the smugglers. More than, I mean, 99% of those arriving irregularly regularly are using smugglers and some of these smugglers they leave people to die in the desert or in the Mediterranean or in the Atlantic so it's so much tragedy in this and it's so important that we do not be too narrow and only focus at our external borders we have to work with partner countries along the route okay we'll leave it there thank you very much commissioner we'll wait and see how much progress is made on this migration pact over the next six months and uh, thank you very much for joining us thank you Now it's time to turn our gaze a little further afield. Canberra, the capital of Australia, may be over 16,000 kilometres away from Brussels, but there are many ways in which they are interlinked. A high-level delegation of Australian officials recently visited our political studios during a visit to Brussels where they were meeting with the EU institutions and NATO. The purpose of their visit was, in many ways, to reset relations. Australia has a new government as of May of this year, led by Labour Party leader and Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. And it's been nearly a year since Australia announced its defence alliance with the US and the UK, otherwise known as AUKUS, scuppering a 90 billion euro submarine deal with a French state control company and causing quite a diplomatic row with some European countries, particularly France. But time has passed, geopolitics have shifted dramatically, and the Australians are keen to kickstart discussions with the EU, particularly on issues like a free trade agreement, or an FTA, as you'll hear referenced in this interview, with Politico's EU-China correspondent, Stuart Lau. He sat down with Professor Rory Medcalf, head of the National Security College at the Australian National University and a thought leader on the Indo-Pacific. He's also joined by Professor Duncan Lewis, 
an eminent military and security expert who has held senior roles in the Australian military and public service, including as Australia's ambassador to the EU, Belgium and NATO. Stuart began by asking Professor Lewis how the war in Ukraine is impacting EU-Australia relations. Ukraine is not a European problem only. I mean, it is a European problem, but it's not only a European problem. It is actually a global problem. And uh, we would like to make sure that the message is conveyed that we in Australia regard this as being something that affects us. It impacts our national interest. You know, we are a middle power. We're interested in a rules-based global order. And the actions of Mr Putin have been in stark contradiction and breach of that rules-based order. And so that impacts us. The second thing that is um, very important for us is the fact that there is a possibility and a real possibility that there could be knock-on effects from the Ukraine war, which will or could impact the Indo-Pacific. And so that is really something that focuses Australia's mind. Uh, The Ukraine war, if nothing else, uh, is an an interest for spectators. There are people uh, watching uh, the Ukraine war. There are people who may not wish us well that are watching the Ukraine war to see how the democracies of the world respond. I think there's been a fantastic response to this point. There is more to do, uh, but uh, it's important that Australia conveys to the nations of Europe that we are on board with this issue uh, and engagement with Europe is very important to us. Rory, I mean, tell us more about what are on the minds of these policymakers in Europe. I mean, what do you feel like is their major concern right now? I'm struck by the level of convergence in Australian and European thinking. And I would not have said this or seen this three years ago, five years ago. You know, there is a really profound shift. And I think it's partly a wake up or an awareness or a reality check, as we call it in Australia, about the nature of Chinese power under uh, the Communist Party and under this leadership and the way that power is being used. But it's also, even more pointedly in Europe, a recognition that China's support for Russia over the Ukraine invasion is incredibly unhelpful and damaging to a rules-based, a principles-based global order to really the values of the, the European project. So I think there is a quite a furious like-mindedness that I'm seeing. It's very hard, of course, for us to translate that immediately into practical solidarity, but I think that's the direction of travel. If we focus on EU-Australia relationship, two things stand out as the constant kind of points of discussions over the last few months. You know, First of all, people are talking about So we have a new government now. What about the FTA? I mean, you've been in the EU job. You took it up 10 years ago, I suppose. You know, at that time, people were already thinking about that. 10 years on, we're still waiting for the FTA. Do you think we're going to see any breakthrough anytime soon? Uh, Well, Stuart, I certainly hope so. Uh, I mean, I was here as the ambassador some years ago, eight years ago now, and we had the first tentative discussions at that point about whether there was a possibility of an FTA. And as you and I know, those processes are very long and drawn out. Uh, We're now on track, and it would seem to me, and look, I'm not um, close to the negotiations in any way, but it would seem to me that the circumstances now are such that if you accept the democracies of the world are under some sort of siege or attack, and if you accept the reason for the democracies perhaps um, 
weakness, if that's the right word, is as a result of democracies not being able to deliver on that sort of social contract of progressive and inexorable rise in wealth and prosperity of the citizens. If you accept all that and you understand that as a result of COVID, we have had a terrible economic blow across the globe, then for prosperity to continue, there is going to have to be greater productivity And for greater productivity, one of the the most important levers around that will be trade and free trade. And so I think for that reason, there could well be, and I certainly hope, that there would be an acceleration of free trade initiatives around the world, ones that are positive. And we would hope that the uh, free trade agreement with the EU could progress at best speed. The atmospherics are, I think, different now. You know, necessity is the mother of invention here. And and I think that the circumstances, both strategically and economically, that both parties, the EU and Australia, find themselves in, it seems to me that the benefits, the overwhelming benefits of a good, high-quality free trade agreement is very clear. And we shouldn't get hung up as you often do on the last sort of 5% and find that you're missing the 95%. So I would be inclined to work uh, really towards action rather than 100% solution. I think it's better to get it done. That, that would be my view. Now, I know that's that, that view would be contested by some, but I think it's really important at this time that we do it. Uh, the other big change in the atmospherics here, of course, is around the issue of climate change. Mm-hmm. Obviously, with the advent of a new government in Australia, there is now quite clearly um, the first signs of, or there are discussions going on between the EU and Australia with regard to climate change. And that will also perhaps the word would be lubricate the passage to a free trade agreement as well. But it it will be, there'll be some negotiation, I'm sure, around that. I'm I'm not privy to the the way it's progressing. But I I think the, the negotiation of a successful free trade agreement is critical right now. Right. The other elephant in the room, Rory, of course, is AUKUS. I mean, I'm sure this time around in Europe, you have to do a lot of explanation about what AUKUS means. But do you also get a feeling that, you know, it's been, what, several months after AUKUS was signed, Do you feel like, you know, Europeans just don't care anymore? Look, I think we all know what, we think we know what AUKUS is, right? So Australia, UK, US, essentially a technology sharing arrangement to make Australia a stronger strategic actor in the Indo-Pacific, especially through the development of a nuclear propelled submarine capability. I think there is still a need for some myth busting on AUKUS. And I mean, I think those of us on the Australian delegation here, uh, both independent experts and, and government voices as well, you know, are all very happy to do some myth busting. I think time has helped a little. I think some of the misperceptions and the frictions around the announcement of AUKUS in September last year are beginning to dissipate. Uh, I'd be the first to say that the timing of that was far from ideal. One of the other messages that we have here is our strong support for the EU Indo-Pacific strategy. And so we certainly want to distinguish that from AUKUS, which is, in my view, not a piece of the strategic architecture of the Indo-Pacific. It's not a replacement for the Quad. It's not a replacement for other diplomatic arrangements. It's really about building Australian capability. So I think in that sense, time has helped and a bit of mutual awareness has helped. I would also say that the change of government has not been unhelpful because clearly personalities get involved in these questions of trust or mistrust. 
But we do have work to do in reassuring European partners that Australia's determination to be a stronger strategic actor is actually in their interest. And I just would add as a final side note to that, that a lot of AUKUS is not only about the submarines, it's about Australia looking for partners to develop critical technologies to really be at the leading edge, whether it's in hypersonics or AI or cyber. And over time, I could see that conversation broadening beyond the US, UK, Australia triangle, uh, and Europe would be an obvious partner of choice in that regard. Thanks again to Stuart for bringing us that conversation and, of course, to the Australian delegation for winning the award for the podcast guests who have travelled the furthest to join EU Confidential. And that's all the time we have for today. Please take a minute to subscribe or follow the podcast wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode in your podcast feed. And if you have ideas for guests or topics, get in touch with our team directly by emailing us at podcast at politico.eu. I'm Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. Thanks this week to our podcast intern, Namrathan Prasad, our editor, James Randerson, and our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.